0: Sometimes this familial language that you hear in the church world, uh, it sometimes can be used for the purpose of just sounding friendly. It can, some, churches can sometimes just use this language because they want to sound inviting, they want to sound welcoming, they want to sound nice. And while I think that that's, that's partially okay, I want you to know, just, just from your pastor, that is not the reason why we use this language here. Like we use this language because we firmly believe that there is a New Testament standard for how you are to experience church, and it's supposed to be experienced as a family. And, and so to be clear, you know, referring to our church as a family is not something that is a buzz phrase to us, okay? This is something that is a part of, of uh, the DNA of our church. I sure hope it is, at least. It's for sure something that we are trying to put into the DNA of our church, that one of the key identity markers of New Point is that we would do church as a family. Now, let me just tell you, this is not something that we are going to simply just drift into. You don't just wake up one day and roll out of bed and come to church and you're like, "Oh man, look at the, look at the culture of this place," or look at the, you know, how they we just do church as family. This is something that we have to live into intentionally because it's not easy to be a spiritual family. Let me just tell you, it's not easy. And some of you you've been in different church contexts and different places where, you know, you've experienced heartache in church. You've experienced heartache in the family of God. It's not easy to do life with a spiritual family, and it's why we can often prefer the language of family over the practice of it. We are in uh, a teaching series called Building the House, Um, and uh, this has been a a series where we we are essentially identifying the DNA of who we are. Uh, who is New Point? What are we about? What are, what are our values? What kind of culture are we trying uh, to create here? This series is our best attempt at putting into words uh, the kind of experience that we want you to have as you interact with this house, as you interact with this church, as you interact with this family. And so this, this series is really meant to reveal the, the bricks uh, that we want to use to sort of build the culture here at, at the church. Um, if you were to view our church as a sort of a construction project, uh, then the topics that we have been teaching on uh, each week and the topics we're going to continue to teach on uh, here over the next few weeks, um, these are the materials that we want to use to sort of build this house. Uh, this is what we want to be about. And so in week one, if you were with us, you know that I started this series off laying that first brick. I, I said, you know, if we're going to start anywhere, it has to start with Jesus. So I said, brick one, it's all about Jesus. When it comes to the culture of New Point, this is, this is what matters most. It's all about Jesus. Week two Pastor Josh uh, taught a message, uh, it was, it was uh, called On Earth As It Is In Heaven, and uh, obviously that's a very famous language, but it's a huge part of the, the kind of church that, that we want to build, that you know um, we believe that, we, we, that the God that we read about in the Old Testament, the God we read about in the New Testament is the same God that we read about and know and interact with uh, today, and so we just have this, this great hunger for the kingdom of God to break into our world in the here and now. And and that's just a massive part of of our church. Um, uh, Week three, you'll remember we had guests with us. We had Mike and Dina Van Hoel, and they really brought a message about the radical love of God. And what was uh, really, really uh, unique and special about that is that it it really echoed a theme that if you've been around here for any length of time, you know that we have talked a lot about the radical love of God um, that that uh, there is nothing that you can do to get God to love you more. That there's nothing you can do to get God to love you less. That his love is for you. It's moving in your direction at all times. And that is a, that's a massive part of the kind of church that we are seeking to, to build and create together. Um, it's, 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 it's a pretty big deal. Well, week four, uh, Pastor Josh was back and he, he gave a message uh, about uh, a family on a mission that there, there's more to what we are called to than to just come and to listen to some sermons and sing some songs and see each other once a week. But that there is a mission that has been given to us by Jesus that we are on, and, uh, and we need to live into that. And then last week, of course, he talked about how when we gather, we need to gather with great expectation. Uh, there needs to be this curiosity, this expectation, this wonder of what God might actually do in our midst as we come together as, as the people of God. And, um, and so today I want to I just continue on in, in uh, just sharing with you the, the culture of the church that we're, we're building right now. And I'm going to lay the sixth brick. Uh, and so if you're taking notes, that is this. It's church as family. Church as family. Uh, a big part of, of what we're trying to do here is we want to experience church as a family. Now let me just let you know something right off the bat. This is probably not going to be your most favorite message that I have ever given. Uh, I, I can just about guarantee that there will be, if you were to think over the last few years, there probably are others that you would rank higher. This one probably won't be there. But what I do know about this message that I'm about to give you is that if you would engage, if, like, if you would if open up your heart, if you'd lean in and engage with me, I really believe that there are some, some profound things that God wants to reveal to you and to me about why we are to experience church as a family. Why this is so critical to the way the church is designed to function uh, and operate. If you've been at church for any real length of time, then, you know, you've, you've, you've probably heard the church described as a family. Uh, describing the church as a family has, has almost been a buzz phrase uh, that gets thrown around a lot. And I think mostly for good reason, because, you know, we want the church to be friendly, don't we? Like it's better than the alternative. Like, we, we want the church to be relational. We want the church to be inviting, but not because this is our idea. And we're thinking about, you know, how do you, how do you design a church? I know we should make it feel like a family, or we should use familial language. No, you know, we, like, we use language like this because we believe that this was God's idea for the church from the very beginning, right? That he would, that he would rescue those who, who, were, who were lost and then invite them to be a part Of his family. That's what he's done for you, and that's what he's done for me. We are a part of the family of God. And so if we are going to experience church this way, then we have to probably start by asking a pretty a pretty important question. And and that question is like, what do we mean? So what do we really mean when we talk about the church as a family? You know, what 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 do we mean when we say that a huge part of the culture we're attempting to build in this church is that we would experience it as a family? And so I want to kind of take the, the remainder of our time today sort of, sort of answering that, um, just, just sort of leaning into that, that question, that thought. You know, sometimes this familial language that you hear in the church world, uh, it sometimes can be used for the purpose of just sounding friendly. It can, some, churches can sometimes just use this language because they want to sound inviting. They want to sound welcoming. They want to sound nice. And while I think that that's... that's Partially okay, I want you to know just just from your pastor, that is not the reason why we use this language here. Like we use this language because we firmly believe that there is a New Testament standard for how you are to experience church, and it's supposed to be experienced as a family. And and so if you read the New Testament, you you can you can read through it and, and you will find that there are multiple examples. There are multiple phrases there are multiple times where the people of God are referred to as a family in fact the apostle Paul more than once he talks about the 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 the, the people of God as as the household of God or as the family of believers in fact let me show you this one example in Galatians chapter 6 verse 10 it says this it says therefore as we have opportunity let us do good to how many people to to all people Especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So I read this verse and I read other examples in the New Testament from Paul and, and I just believe that Paul isn't just telling us to uh, you know, to, to, to treat those in the church as, fa- as family. I think he's telling us to treat those in the church as, as close family. Like not just as family members that you see you know, once or twice a year at some family get-together uh, and, and sort of have to put up with for a little while but I think that the, what you know what they're really trying to communicate in, in this New Testament literature is that we would treat those who are part of the family of believers as close family members, and and so to be clear, you know, referring to our church as a family is not something that is a buzz phrase to us. Okay, this is something that is a part of of uh, the DNA of our church. I sure hope it is at least. It's for sure something that we are trying to put into the DNA of our church that one of the key identity markers of New Point is that we would do church as a family. Now, let me just tell you, this is not something that we are going to simply just drift into. You don't just wake up one day and roll out of bed and come to church, and you're like, oh, man, look at the, look at the culture of this place, or look at the, you know, how they, we just do church as family. This is something that we have to live into intentionally. And so uh, we're going to talk about that uh, the rest of, of, of the morning here. But what I want to do is give you some historical and biblical context for experiencing church this way, I want to give you some historical and biblical examples. And so, uh, Rodney Stark, in his very famous classic book, uh, *The Rise of Christianity*, uh, it's a great it's a great book if you care about learning uh, some of the history of the church and how it uh, became what it is uh, uh, today. How the movement really got started. But uh, in in this book, Stark writes about the growth of the early church and how you know it is arguably. Uh, the most remarkable sociological movement in all of human history. And so in, in, in here, he talks about how, you know, 40 A.D., so roughly seven years after, you know, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, he says that there was about 1,000 Christians that existed in the entire Roman Empire. He goes on and says that, that about 350 A.D., so about 300 years later, he says there, there was about about 30 million Christians in the entire Roman Empire 300 years later. He says that that 53% of the population converted to the Christian faith, those who were living in the Roman Empire at the time. In fact, in the book, Stark says this. It's not on the screen, but he says, Jesus was a miracle worker who spent nearly all of his brief ministry in the tiny and obscure province of Galilee. Often preaching to outdoor gatherings, a few listeners took up his invitation to follow him, and a dozen or so became his devoted disciples. But when he was executed by the Romans, his followers probably numbered no more than several hundred. So, Stark in this book, he's a sociologist, right? So he's trying to understand the movement of the early Christians and how it went from this tiny, obscure Uh, you know, uh, group to to something uh, that that became uh, absolutely incredible. And and so he asks this question in the book. It's on the screen if you're taking notes. He says, how is it possible for this obscure Jewish sect to become the largest religion in the world? How, how How is this possible? And obviously, we have, you know, doctrinal reasons for why we believe this. We believe that there's supernatural reasons for this. We believe that You know, the early the early followers of Jesus would have would have felt that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that they were supernaturally empowered to share this truth to people, and that people miraculously started to convert to the Christian faith. But obviously he's doing it from a sociological perspective and and, and he's just saying, you know, how is it possible that this obscure Jewish sect would become the largest religion in the world? How does this even happen? So if you, if you remove some of the supernatural elements that we all, you know, uh, ascribe to, uh, is it possible that there's some, there's some other reasons as well that we need to look at that are more, more practical? You know, because Jesus' ministry, uh, it was relatively small. It was short, right? It, it was about three years. About, about three years, you know, that Jesus had a ministry here on, on earth. And, 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 you know, like, like Stark says, it happens in this really obscure, remote area uh, seemingly in the middle of nowhere in Galilee, and yet somehow, way, the teachings of Jesus and the followers of Jesus bring the Roman Empire to its knees. And the question that's asked here by Stark is, says, like, how, how does this happen? How, how does this actually begin to happen? If you're taking notes, this is what he says. He says, the early followers of Jesus brought the Roman Empire to its knees through deep love for each other and unprecedented love for the stranger. This is how they brought the Roman Empire to its scenes. This is how the movement of Jesus expanded from just just several hundred people at the time of his death to roughly 30 million people 300 years later. In fact, Lucian, who was a second century enemy of Christianity, uh, writing in the second century, so this is about 150 years after Jesus dies, this is what he says. He's writing this to the emperor of Rome. Okay, so we have this on record. This is what Lucian says. He says, as he's observing Christians in the second century, he says, it's incredible to see the warmth with which the people of this religion help one another. They lack nothing. Their first legislator, Jesus, has convinced them that they are brothers. So this is somebody who was an enemy and a persecutor of Christianity, someone who did not like what they stood for, resisted them, you know, at, at every uh, opportunity. And yet as he observes the early Christians in the second century, he is saying, man, there is something crazy about these people. Th- this Jesus guy that they're following, he has actually convinced them that they're family. He's actually convinced them that they are brothers and sisters and, and they treat each other this way. And it's incredibly remarkable and he reports back to the emperor and tells him that. Well, this is some historical context. Let me give you some biblical uh, examples here. Acts chapter 2 is perhaps the most famous place that we see in Scripture um, for the example of how the church functioned as a family. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, it says this It says, They devoted themselves, this is the early church, to the apostles' teaching and to, fellowship, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders, and miraculous signs were done by the apostles all the believers were together and had everything in common selling their possessions and good they gave to anyone as he had need every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people catch this and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved so this is This is the biblical context we have for what it looks like to really do church as family. And this is Acts chapter 2. And if you know anything about, about, you know, Acts 2, Acts 2 was one of the most famous chapters that we have in the entire Bible. Uh, Earlier in in Acts chapter 2, what we have is one of the most significant events that has ever taken place. One of the most significant events in the history of the church, it is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If you remember, that's the very beginning of Acts, of Acts 2. And so the reason why this, this matters, let me get to that, but, but the reason why this is such a significant thing is because Jesus, in his post-resurrection interactions with his disciples, he tells them to not yet go into the all, all the world and try the mission, right? He tells them to go and wait because they first needed God's power. Like, he didn't want them to go and try the mission of, of uh, telling people about Jesus until they first had the power of God on their life. And so what happens is the, the disciples and other followers of Jesus, they gather in Jerusalem, in the upper room, and they pray. They seek God. And what happens is, is, is just incredibly powerful and incredibly unique. You can go read it in Acts two. But, but the story is, is that the fire of God comes down and it actually rests upon them and they begin to speak in other languages. This is, this is Acts chapter 2. In fact, just a side note, I, I was, when I was in Israel um, uh, almost three years ago, two and a half years ago, I, I had the chance to be in uh, the room where they, they commemorate this, where they commemorate uh, – it's not the actual upper room from 2,000 years ago, but it's in about the same area and uh, I was in there, and all everybody from our group, we began to just sing that song, you know, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And it was, it was, it goosebumps, you know, uh, realizing that that's like what happened then, and do it again, do it again, God, do it again in our day. And so Acts 2, you know, what's happening in the upper room is, is so intense that the story tells us that it begins to spill out into the streets. Uh, it can't be contained in just this one room. It spills out into into the streets, and people begin to accuse them of, of actually being drunk, because they're acting kind of bizarre, and, and so Peter finally has to stand up and say, you know, these people are not drunk, as, as you suppose, it's only like 9, 10 in the morning, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not that, type of, that type of group, so um, people are confused about what's, what's going on, so Peter stands up, he says, they're not drunk, as you suppose, but this is actually the promise of the Holy Spirit that, that was talked about by the prophet Joel, you know, Joel 2. which which Peter gets up and he quotes that in the last days God will pour out his spirit on all people, that sons and daughters will prophesy, that young men will will dream dreams and old men will have visions, right? This is, Peter begins to quote this passage in Joel chapter 2. So it's a big deal, and in in case you didn't know, didn't understand, this is an extraordinary moment in the history of the church. There is fire, there is glory, there is power that is being poured out in Acts chapter 2. Now, I want you just to think for a minute with me. If you were in a church that was filled with fire and glory and power, and you were a church leader, you were a pastor, you were an elder, like, what would you do with that? What would you do with that? You know, if it was me, I'd probably start thinking about, like, a global revival. You know, like, how can we get all kinds of people here. Let's leverage this thing. Let's, let's create a movement. Let's do something that just like blows people away. You know, invite everybody. You know, I would start figuring out how do we leverage this? How do we monopolize this? How do we monetize this? You know, that there's probably a lot of things we'd all start thinking. But you know, you, know what, you know what they did with it? They took the experience and power of Pentecost and they formed small, small communities of Jesus deeply committed to one another and practicing his teachings. That's what they did with it. The power of Pentecost was channeled into tangible communities committed, committed to living with and loving one another. That's, that's what happened. That was the immediate reaction. This was the immediate fruit and result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so this is all happening in the same chapter. So to me, that sets the stage as our church continues to press in for the power of God. To me, that sets the stage as, as, as a church, as, as we continue to believe for the kingdom of God to break into our city. Because when it happened in the New Testament in Acts 2, we see radical love and we see radical community were we're the immediate result of that taking place. And obviously what we see, you know, them talking about here is there's like this radical redistribution of wealth based on love that takes place among them. So that's some, that's some historical and biblical there are a lot of challenges to doing church as a family in 2021 Western culture, isn't there? Like, we read about the early church, and, and, it, and it, I mean, it's, it's like so idealistic, you know? We're like, that's the ideal. That's what we should pursue. But, you know, there, there are a lot of legitimate challenges to trying to pursue community like this in, in our modern context, in a secular culture. Um, I'm going to just give you a couple, a couple big ones Uh, Number one is loneliness. One of the the biggest hurdles to creating a a family atmosphere and a family culture in the church is is this issue of loneliness that exists today. We live at a time in history where people are lonelier than ever before. Did you know that? They're more connected than ever before, and yet they are more lonely than ever before. In fact, um, Cigna uh, created the, the Cigna Loneliness Index and they, they, they uh, surveyed over 20,000 Ameri- uh, American adults, and this is what they, what they uh, discovered, that nearly half of Americans report sometimes or always feeling alone or left out. That one in four Americans rarely ever feel that people understand them. One in five report that they never have close people they feel they can talk to. Only half of Americans have meaningful in-person social relationships with other people on a daily basis, and Generation Z is the loneliest generation in American history. Loneliness has been associated with cardiovascular problems and premature death. Lonely individuals are less likely to achieve quality sleep. They experience uh, reductions in reasoning and creativity. Uh, It reduces workplace productivity as lonely people report less job satisfaction. Loneliness is is, is closely associated with compulsive behaviors like smoking, alcohol use, and Netflix binging. Loneliness and social isolation can be as damaging to our health, they say, as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's pretty remarkable. And so loneliness creates just a a, a, a significant hurdle in 2021 to trying to build the kind of culture that we want to build in a church because we are dealing with a lot of lonely people, not just in our church, but, but outside of our church that we're trying to, to, to reach with the gospel of Jesus. Signa goes on and, and identifies another massive issue facing us today, and it's narcissism. Narcissism. So they talk about how, how, how two of the, the, the biggest issues that we're facing as a society is loneliness and narcissism. So we are more lonely than ever before and more full of ourselves than ever before as well. So we get the word narcissism, if, if you didn't know this, we get it from uh, the myth of narcissists in Greek mythology. In fact, I have a, a book in my office. It's, it's called uh, The Narcissism Epidemic, and it's, 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 it's a worth, uh, worthwhile read. It's um, but Narcissus, he was a beautiful man who scorned everyone who fell in love with him, right? Everyone who fell in love with him, he just, he, he you know, kind of played with their emotions, and then he just scorned them. He, he, he walked away from them. And, and so one day upon seeing his own reflection in the water, he falls in love with himself and ultimately starves to death because he, because he can't take his eyes off of himself. This is the myth of narcissism. You know, we certainly don't know anything about narcissism, do we? It probably doesn't apply to us at all, right? You know, between 1948 and 1954, psychologists asked more than 10,000 adolescents whether they consider themselves to be a very important person. And uh, at the time, only 12% of young people said yes. Uh, When it comes to you know, the structure of society when it comes to what's happening in the human race. They asked, you know, do you consider yourself to be very important? Only 12% of, of, of young people, you know, in, in the late 40s, early 50s, as the world is dealing with like a nuclear crisis and, you know, war, you know, about 12% said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big deal. I'm, I'm pretty important to what's going on in the world right now. In the late 80s, it was 80%. Today, it's almost 100% of young people who are convinced that they are a very important person when it comes to the structure of society uh, and, and, and uh, when it comes to what is happening in the human race. Now, obviously, our young people are very important, but there is a difference in what they're talking about here. There, 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 there is a, a, a massive sense of ego that has, uh, that has risen in uh, recent generations that's present in our current uh, social construct, and so We have to identify that a couple of the most significant hurdles we're facing as a society that is affecting the church when it comes to doing this as a family is loneliness. So people really have a need for this. But then there's narcissism where we've bought into this idea that I can do this myself, that I don't need to depend on other people, that I I shouldn't have to depend on other people. I should depend on, on, on myself to figure out life. So the issue is there. The problem is right there before us. Yet, we don't want to have to ask for help. David Foster Wallace, of so you may know who that is, he, um, he once said this. He said, everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. It's our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There is no experience you've had uh, that you are not at the center of it. The world as you experience is, is there in front of you or behind you to the left or right of you on your TV or your monitor or whatever. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your, your own are immediate, urgent, and Real. So two, two major hurdles, and I'm sure there's others we could identify that would be equally as significant as loneliness and narcissism, but it brings a, up a question, in my mind, if you're taking notes, how on earth do you build loving New Testament community in a society like this? How do you, how do you actually build a loving New Testament community in a society like this? And if, you, if, you, um, you know, if you've observed culture in any way, you know that the way society structures community is actually very, very different From the foundation of community that we see in God's word, that we read in Acts 2, that we read in the New Testament. And so the problem, the problem is this. We like the idea of family. But we're not always great at the reality of it. Because it sounds good, doesn't it? Like we like, we like that language. We're okay using familial language. Like we're good with that. But we're We're not always great at the reality of it. The reality of the church as a family is when it becomes challenging. You know, when we are doing church as a family, expressing church as a family, that's when it starts to actually become challenging because it's no longer just a theory. It's no longer just a good idea that exists out there. It's actually like hard stuff because it's not easy to be a spiritual family. Let me just tell you, it's not easy. And some of you, you've been in different church contexts and different places where You know, you've experienced heartache in church. You've experienced heartache in the family of God. It's not easy to do life with a spiritual family. And it's why we can often prefer the language of family over the practice of it. If you're taking notes, I want you to look at this thought with me. Too often we can use this familial language for pragmatic reasons because we want to sound friendly, like I said earlier. When, when we should be using this language for theological reasons because that is what we actually are. So we don't just like leverage this language for pragmatic purposes to be appear friendly or welcoming or, you know, to sound nice. We, we use this language for theological reasons because we know that the word of God clearly spells it out, that we, we are actually family. We're not just family in theory, that we are part of the family of God now and that there are, there, there are things that that requires of us. There, there, there's, there's realities that that requires of us. And so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot here and talk about uh, and show you just what Jesus, uh, what Jesus says. I want to show you how Jesus redefines family, um, if, if you're taking notes. In fact, Mark 3 is where Jesus redefines family for us. It says this in Mark 3, 31 through 35. It says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they, spent, they sent someone in to call him a crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. In verse 33, Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus, in Mark 3, he redefines family for us. Now this would have been incredibly shocking for anybody in earshot to hear Jesus say this. It would have been absolutely shocking. They they would have been offended by this just as some of us are offended right now because Israel was a nation that was obsessed with the biological family. Like maybe more than we are. They they were obsessed with genealogies. They were obsessed with bloodlines. They were were obsessed with this because this is how they believed grace was granted, that you had to be Jewish. You had to be Jewish in order to be a part of, of the inheritance that God had for you. And so it was a big deal to them. You know, which family you actually came from. And so they tracked that. So Jesus teaches something altogether different here that God's grace is transmitted via a person's acknowledgement of his lordship and allegiance to his community of faith. And so, in other words, what what Jesus is really saying is you're not saved because of your Jewish blood, but you're saved because of Jesus' blood. And this is the different, this is the paradigm that Jesus is trying to present to them here in this. In this moment, so let me just let me just sort of backtrack for a moment and and clear up. You know, Jesus is not undoing the Genesis model of family. Yeah, he's not undoing that in any way. Where it's it's husband and wife, uh, you know, um, son and daughter, and, and all that. You know, he's not undoing the Genesis model of Adam and Eve and their family, the the you know the model of family that, that most of us experience uh, today. Jesus loves family. When I look at this story and I look at how Jesus talks about family and he identifies who his real family is, in a way he is subverting the family structure as our exclusive or even primary loyalty. He's trying to to help show that there is a new loyalty. There is a different loyalty. Your loyalty first and foremost is to Jesus. It's first and foremost to him. He is showing that what binds us together in him is intended to be so deep and it's intended to be so foreign to the world. We're a different kind of family. We're a different kind of family. If you're taking notes, we have been trained by our culture to view our family unit, if we have one, as something that is to be self-contained and self-sufficient. Part of the challenge and need for the church is to make sure that we are intentionally weaving in the wider family of God into our family life. So, so, the, 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 you know, Western culture pri- primarily really, really brings, brings these ideas forward, that the family unit, the nuclear family, is intended to be self-contained and self-sufficient. But this is not the way that Jesus teaches, and this is not the way that, 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 uh, that, that the New Testament lays out how we're supposed to, to, to do life. The New Testament lays out for us that we are to experience life together as family in the body of Christ. And that we are to intentionally weave in the wider family of God into our family life. That, it, that, that our, our family unit, you know, our kids, spouse, and all that, it's not meant to be self-contained and self-sufficient. That, that we cannot live this Christian life out effectively in, in you know, exclusively in those terms. That, that we, are, we are meant to depend on other people. That we, that we are meant to lean hard on the family of God and to have them lean on us. That there are deep and meaningful relationships that are meant to be established in our life and in our family through uh, the the people of God. And so the typical family stereotype is that you get married, you have a couple kids, you get a dog, and then you pull up the drawbridge, you know? Um, And that's the basic unit by which you do life. The Bible paints this picture that our biological family and our spiritual family, they need each other. That it is not right and it is not healthy for them to exist apart from each other. How many you know that this is, this is incredibly difficult for churches in the West? Because instinctively, we are individualistic, aren't we? We are consumers. That is, that is like a massive part of our cultural identity is that we are consumers. And so if we aren't getting out of our church what we feel we should be getting, then most people go and find something else. Rather than, you know, am I coming to church to give and to serve and to be a blessing uh, to others? And so there is there's a breakdown. People go down the street, they go somewhere else because they're just not getting out of this what they want, and they fail to view the people that they sit next to and serve with and love with as people who are a part of their family and people who are a significant part of their spiritual success. So here in Mark 3, not only does Jesus redefine family, but he actually inaugurates through his life and his ministry a new family of God. That's what we really see happening, Right? That that, that God rescues those who are lost and then he invites them to be a part of his family. This is a a family of disciples who who follow him with their whole lives. It's a family that welcomes widows and orphans, slaves and freemen, Jews and Gentiles. The church, therefore, isn't a bunch of families that simply meet together every Sunday. The church is a family. We, We actually are a family. The early church got it and, you know, sure, there were people who still got married, and they had families, and that was, that was definitely encouraged. But there were people who also didn't. There were people who didn't get married. There were people who didn't have families. They chose, some people chose not to just out of devotion to Jesus. And so the unmarried, the widows, the abandoned, all these people, you know, they, we find that they were welcomed in as full family members into uh, the family of God. You see, there are a lot of people who have a dysfunctional relationship with family. There's a lot of people in here that have a dysfunctional relationship with family. And so unless we really define this clearly, we can all assume something different about what we're trying to build here at this church. And so, so you can think, well, okay, my context for family has been this, and so I guess that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to build something incredibly dysfunctional, you know, or, or uh, we're, we're trying to build something where we just never talk to each other, you know, or, or whatever, that is absolutely, we're trying to build a biblical um, environment of what family is supposed to look like and so you know the passages we read in acts chapter 2 it reveals some core principles that i want to show you here 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 quickly that actually make the kind of family experience we long for in church even possible um so acts acts 2 um, 42 through 47 it gives us some core principles there's three i want to just give you fast one is this a deep devotion to one another this is what we see in the early church that there was a deep devotion to one another uh, let, let me just give you verse 42 right here. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so what we see is that it is devotion that makes everything else possible. They're devoted to one another. They're not, commit, they're not content to just meet together once a week. They met daily. They cared, cared daily. They won souls daily. They studied the scriptures daily. Christian life for them was not a once-a-week activity, okay? but it was a way of life and it was a culture because they believed that the resurrection of Jesus actually changed all of life. It changed everything about them and so they lived it out this way. And so if you're taking notes, according to Acts two, the church is this, it is the community of the devoted, expressing their allegiance to Jesus through devotion to scripture, fellowship, intimacy, prayer, the Holy Spirit, generosity, evangelism, mercy, gathering together, large and small, thankfulness and worship. This is the church. This is what the church is. The church, make no mistake, it is not a building. It is not a location, and it has never been those things. It is this. It is this right here. How many of y'all know that it looks so much different today, though? What we read then is different than what we see and experience now. Pastor I follow, he took Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, and he rewrote it, Uh, which I don't don't encourage you to do that, Um, but he rewrote it. Um, to really resemble uh, not the culture then, but the culture now. He rewrote it to resemble not the, not the way the church was then, but to resemble what the church is now. And this is what he said, uh, Acts 2.42, rewritten for a modern application. He says, it says, they studied the apostles' teaching when they had time. They went to fellowship when they could fit it in. They prayed when they needed something and got coffee together every now and then. They were content without and had low expectations for signs and wonders in their midst. They sometimes talked about generosity but kept all of their possessions for themselves. Two out of five Sundays, they came to corporate gatherings. They didn't invite people into their homes and rarely rarely revealed their hearts. They were largely irrelevant to all the people and occasionally someone was randomly saved. This is an example of why I think there is so much frustration with our lived experience with church. Because we read about something in the New Testament. We read about something in, in, in the first few centuries and, and we compare that to our, our shared experience of what church is and there is a disconnect. There is something missing. You look at how they lived in the book of Acts and you saw what God did and then you look at how we live now and you ask the question, why is there such little fruit and such little power? It's just an entirely different experience. And so they had deep devotion to one another. They, 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 they were... They were bound together by the shared love for Jesus, they had this in common. I mean, the, the, I mean, people came together with all different kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds. There, there were those who were wealthy and those who were not, and they, they all come together uh, and, and, and they, are, they have everything in common, scripture says, because what, what brought them together wasn't their socioeconomic backgrounds. What brought them together was their shared love for Jesus. And it says they had everything in common. When we would look at the surface and say they actually didn't, because we would evaluate our church the same way and say we, we don't really have everything in common. There, there's a lot of things that differentiate us, that make you know, your life different than my life and, 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 you know, um, and, and so on. But what they're getting at here in the New Testament is that the thing that they had in common, it, 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 it leveled the playing field. It, it caused all that extra stuff to just sort of fade away because what they had in common was, was their shared love for Jesus. The second thing, that we see here in, the scripture, in these scriptures is that they had a deep sense of God's presence and awe. Look at verse 43. It says, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. They were filled with awe. So there was a deep sense of God's presence and awe. I wonder, when was the last time you gathered with some Christian friends from church and you were just in awe you were just in wonder about what God might do in your midst as you gathered together. When was the last time you had an experience like that? As Josh explained last week, you know, there, there was an expectancy then and there needs to be an expectancy now for the many wonders and miraculous signs that God wants to do in our day. When the church gathers as a family, there should be a deep sense of God's presence and awe as we anticipate what our Heavenly Father might choose to do during our time together. This is what they had in common. They got together and there was just like, I wonder what he's up to. I wonder what he's going to do. I wonder, like, who's going to get saved today? Who's going to get set free? Like, you know, who's going to get healed? I wonder what's going to happen. What is God going to do as we gather? There was a deep sense of, of awe and wonder, a deep sense of God's presence. They, 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 they showed up just thinking, man, anything could literally happen today. And that's something that we need to return to. The last one. So they had a deep devotion uh, to one another. There was a deep sense of God's presence and awe. And then the third one was they had a deep love for one another. Like a deep love. A a deep love for one another. Look at this verse 44. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Okay, we already talked about that. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Now this um, this is radical, isn't it? And it's uncomfortable. And I wish it wasn't in there. You know, two of the most dominant economic systems that have, that have uh, existed in civil, civil, civilization over the last 100 plus years is um, communism and free market capitalism. Communism has had its opportunities last century and the result was what we would all call less than human flourishing, you know? Capitalism, on the other hand, has probably done more to alleviate human suffering than any other economic system in human history. However, there is still a lot of tension that that maybe some of us feel. There's a lot of tension that exists out there in in society as we look at the giant excesses between the rich and the poor and we try to figure out how do we bridge the gap to help people who are suffering. There's always tensions out there that exist between capitalism and communism. It's always out there. But in the New Testament, we see something incredibly unique. We see something incredibly unique in the New Testament church. This is what it is. I don't have this on your screen, but if you're taking notes, what we see is a voluntary redistribution of wealth based on love. It is a voluntary redistribution of wealth based on love. Because if you force people to do this, it just doesn't work. You tell people they have to do this, you start garnishing their paychecks, it doesn't work, does it? Obviously, it, it doesn't work. We've seen it in history. It does not work. But when the love of Jesus comes into someone's life, And it melts their heart, and it melts their selfishness. Something incredible begins to take place. And what we see in the early church was that, at will and as needed, people would sell their homes and their possessions, and they would pay off each other's debts. You know, if this if this happened today, um, it would catch the attention of the entire world, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? I'm not. I'm not telling you that you got to do this. I I, I mean, it'd be interesting. but all I'm saying is that it would catch the attention of the entire world. It'd be a New York Times article. Right? If, if somebody chose to do that, if we did that here, like if something happened like that, like, hey, I have, I have excess, I'm just going to sell it. I know there's some people in here who don't. And, um, and so this isn't, the, this isn't the model necessarily. It's not what I'm trying to tell you that, that, that we, are, we are attempting to do. So you're not going to be getting calls from me asking if you have, like, winter homes and things like that that we could, we could sell. That's not going to be happening. And, I, and actually, I think that in a lot of ways, it's 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 it, like I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I'm happy to happy to use your vacation homes anytime you want you want to let me. But um, what I do believe we're after is radical generosity until there is not one needy needy person among us. That's what that's what we're after: radical generosity until there's not one needy person among us. This is more than just saying you love someone. This is more than just saying, hey, we're family, just because we want to be friendly and we want to sound inviting. This is saying we're family because we actually care. We actually care about each other. If you're taking notes, the church is a family rooted and planted together as adopted sons and daughters with covenant devotion and love towards their brothers and sisters. This is what the church is. So let me just recap here for a second as I start to close out. We live at a time in history where there is an epidemic of loneliness and narcissism. It's true. We don't have the training or the commitments because of the world we live in to actually commit like like we should or like we even want to, right? We just just don't know how to do that. And so in order for the church to be the thing that God's called it to be, it's gotta be based on deep devotion. It's gotta be based on the presence and awe of God. And it's gotta be based on deep, deep, deep agape love. Let me just tell you this. If you're, if you're willing to devote yourself, if you're willing to commit yourself, you know what happens is what we read in, the, in, what we read in Acts 2, what happens then is that the, the door opens for the supernatural. It releases unprecedented generosity. It becomes an environment that attracts the lost. This, this is what people were attracted to. How does, how does this, this sort of fledgling movement of, of just a few hundred people at the time of Jesus' death explode into the dominant religion of our day? And how does it bring the entire Roman Empire to its knees? It's, it's through a deep love for one another, and unprecedented love for the stranger. It's, it's, it's possessing something in our community that does not exist out there in secular culture. It's, it's actually having something in our midst that is so different, so radically otherworldly that when people see it and they, 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 they're exposed to it it, it, it draws them in. The Bible tells us in Acts 2 that there were, the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. There's an attractional reality to doing church as family that people go, man, I, these people are crazy. These people actually love each other. They don't just call each other family. They, they do it, life as family. And it attracts people. and It attracts the lost. So so what does it actually look like for New Point to be a family? I'm just going to close with a few, a few ideas. I think that we begin to see our spiritual family as actual family. I think, I think that's what happens. And sometimes you have to just like Get that in your muscle memory. You almost have to use a language like that. You have to kind of just remind yourself, okay, yeah, this is my family, warts and all. You know, this is, this is who I belong to. This is how the New Testament describes us. It's not some honorary title. It's an actual biblical title. This is who we are. We are a family. I think you see hospitality. When you, when you talk about what does it look like for New Point to be a family, I think you see radical hospitality opening up our normal everyday life to other people sharing meals, sharing activities, raising kids together, being there for each other in times of grief, being there for each other in in difficult, difficult situations that we don't just come to church and put on a, a, a happy smile, but we come to our family and we're very real and authentic and honest. We're vulnerable with one another about what we are going through. You know, no one should be lonely in the church. How do we how does, what does it look like for New points to be a family? Well, there's, there's no one lonely in our church. There's no one lonely. You know, there's different temperaments and different personalities. And if you know me very well, uh, you'll know that I, I actually can be quite introverted at times. And, um, and so there's difference in, in personalities, and that's not, that's not what I'm getting at. It's, it's okay to be alone, but it's not okay to be lonely going to have moments where you just need to like pull away and be by yourself, but it's not okay for there to be lonely people in our church. I think that there we have to be willing to give our time to each other, so it needs to be priority. You know, I think that for us to be a family, then you have to actually give time. You have to have time to build deep and meaningful life-giving relationships. There has to be radical generosity, like I just said, until it can be said of us that there is no needy person among us radical generosity and I don't I don't ever you know you know this like I, I hardly ever talk about tithes hardly ever but they're like this is why like radical generosity so it can be said that there's not one needy person among us it's okay to have things but you can't let things have you and when we do church this way when it looks like a family, then what we find is that the lost are drawn. They just are compelled. They think, man, I haven't seen something like that. And the church is supposed to look radically different. We're supposed to treat each other as a family. Would you stand with me this morning? Would you just bow your heads just for, for one moment as I get ready to close in prayer? I was just wondering. You know, as I talked about loneliness, narcissism, I'm wondering if there's any of you in here today with heads bowed that you would just say, you know, that this is a pretty lonely season. Could I just, could I just see your hand if that's you in here today? You just say it's a lonely season. This is a lonely time in my life. Mm. You put your hands down. How many of you would say that this is just a season of my life where I'm thinking about myself far too much? And I need to get my eyes off of all of the things I think I need. And I need to start getting my eyes onto the things that really matter most. Church, there's just hands up in this room for both of those. And you have, you have family in this room that are dealing with loneliness and you have family in this room that's dealing with some priority issues. What I just want to do today if that's you if you raised your hand and if you didn't if you would just together if we would just sort of just take this moment and just invite the holy spirit to come and just do do something in our in our time together here. Father, we ask now for you to come God, I pray that you would put your arms around every person who raised their hand, just admitting that this is a lonely season. And just as their pastor, that breaks my heart, God. Father, we wanna wanna build a church that would, that it could be said of us that there's not one lonely person among us. And so I ask God that you would just open the door for deep and meaningful, life-giving friendships to exist here in this church. God, show us how to do it better. Give us a strategy for deep community in this church that would resemble your heart and your idea and your original design for how church should work. God, show us how to do it. I pray that we would prioritize this. I, I pray, God, that we would see people who, who maybe are sitting by themselves. We may, may God, see people who we've never talked to and we'd start to maybe just invite them out to lunch. We'd, 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 we'd ask them their name. We would just, just ascribe value and honor to them and get to know them as as a family member, God. And I also pray for the rest of us in here who would just say, you know, this is just a season where I'm just too caught up in myself. I'm too caught up in what I gotta do. I'm I'm too focused on my stuff that I have a very difficult time seeing other people. And so I ask for you just to free us from this sort of cultural rhythm. I ask for freedom, God, to come to this this very very cultural norm that that just just seems like the way we gotta do life, the way it's meant to happen, the way it's meant to, to flow. And Lord, I pray that there would just become in us this, this high, high value and high, high priority for the people of God, for the family of God of which we are a part. And so Lord, I know that this doesn't just happen because I preached a sermon one day. So God, I am asking for something supernatural to take place in our church where you would begin to build a culture here of a family, that there'd be a deep sense of belonging, a deep sense of devotion and love. And I pray that as we gather, we would have a, a, a deep sense of the presence and the power of God in our midst. Lord, come and do in our church what only you can do, oh God. We give you thanks today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.